remember wearing flowers in your hair? Did you buy a VW van to travel overland on the hippie trail to Afghanistan or India? Did you stand shoulder to shoulder with your fellow protesters shouting, Make love, not war? Here on Boomer Bedtime Stories, we take a deep dive into the adventures of a generation. That will make you laugh, make you cry, or just shake your head. Wondering, how on earth did we ever get away with that? Hello everyone, and welcome to Boomer Bedtime Stories. I'm your host, Karen Heaps. Our podcast today, Freedom Calling, Part 1, is about my dad, Leo Heaps, and about the roles he and his buddy, Yussi Brenin, played during the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. The tales that follow are an integral part of my story, this boomer's story. And to see how all the pieces in this episode come together, I feel I need to share a few of my more wacky and light-hearted adventures growing up with my dad, and then let the story kind of morph into his more public and notable exploits, namely how he and his buddy Yussi find themselves in Hungary and Austria during the Russian invasion. I feel a bit like I'm in grade four, you know, when you went to school and and the teacher asked you to tell her a story about your family or about your dad or what he did for work. My dad was a man who really yearned for a more just and free world. It fueled his adventures, it fueled the characters in his books, and the stories he told us as children. He saw himself as a rebel and a defender of the underdog, and I think he may have imagined himself a little as the Scarlet Pimpernel. They seek him here, they seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. And a little as the Cape Crusader. But as we all know, every Cape Crusader also has his kryptonite. And for Leo, it was boredom and a restless nature. It was definitely on the edge where he felt most alive. And as children, he enticed us into that world, kind of almost daring us to go there. When he took us on a ski trip to Austria, it wasn't so much, Have a safe flight. Or enjoy your hotel room as climbing over the Alps in a snow blizzard in the dead of night. In our little Morris 1100, my 10-year-old brother shouting, Let me out! Let me out of here! And staying in Hotel Nancy, an old Parisian bordello with red crushed velvet curtains and vibrating beds (laughs) that my sister and I giggled on all night long. We didn't so much go out for a day's sail on a calm lake in a dinghy or a squadron boat as trapeze on a flying Dutchman that skimmed the waves like a bullet. When he dreamt of owning the Contessa, a seaworthy sloop he'd chosen, he bought the Zodiac first, the oars and life jackets, inflated it in the middle of our apartment living room, and off we sailed onto the high seas. Ahoy there. When he took us skiing in Vermont, it was 20 below zero and we were the only ones on the mountain, wearing long blanket ponchos to stay warm on the ride up and stopping on the way down to sample frozen maple syrup off a log. It was sometimes terrifying, but it was never boring, and I learned to be brave. I'm not sure I ever felt completely safe, but he wrapped us in his universe, and he beguiled us with adventure, and somehow we always came through intact. 
There are some men just not made for peacetime. All right, if I have to, I'll go alone. If we're ever to have our freedom, we've got to fight for it. Now, give me some men who are stout-hearted men who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. Always question authority and never be afraid to help a fellow human being. That was his credo passed down. And now to more important matters. I found it kind of strange that my father had never written or published anything about his Hungarian adventure, as he had published books about many of his other exploits. So when I had the idea to do this story, I reached out to Carol, Yussi's daughter, to see if maybe Yussi had written anything. My dad had invited, some might say lured, his buddy Yussi into joining him. I found out that they had posed as journalists and photojournalists to help get them closer to the Hungarian border, and actually had sent dispatches back to CFCF Radio in Montreal and to the Montreal Gazette. And Carol had found these dispatches buried deep in Yussi's memoir. So here we go. A journey back in time to Austria and Hungary, 1956. Hungarian army units refused to fire on the people. Barricades were erected in the streets. But then came the Soviet tanks. The Hungarians had appealed to the West for help. SOS! SOS! That help, which they expected, did not come. Refugees poured across the borders. In all, more than 186,000. SOS! SOS! There has always been an adventure streak in Leo Heaps, whether in business or in conflict situations. Leo was never satisfied just to be an onlooker to events from a safe distance. He had to be there in person. When revolt broke out in Hungary in 1956, the lure was too great for him to resist becoming involved. Leo let it be known that after having been vetted by the International Rescue Committee, or the IRC, he will fly to Austria to help in their humanitarian task. He asked me if I would like to join him. Of course I would, but there were a few hurdles to overcome. First, my wife's blessing, leaving my business for a while, and the cost of the escapade. If I had reservations about going, it was about undertaking a venture with Leo himself. I had second thoughts about our relations under unfamiliar conditions. I wondered, for example, why he, a loner, asked me to come along. Was there an ulterior motive? Our understanding was that he, proceeding under the aegis of the IRC, would be the photographer, and I would be the newspaper and radio reporter. Adopting the self-appointed roles, I contacted the Montreal Gazette and radio station CFCF offering my services. Both of them accepted my offer. And why not? Neither of them furnished an advance towards expenses. And so they had nothing to lose and everything to gain. Overcoming the vigorous opposition of our spouses was a struggle. But what chance did they have to prevail over our resolve to be witness to an historical event? Finally, they admitted defeat, though not without reminding us that the future of two women and a combined total of seven children depended on our safe return. December 1956. 
We arrived on a cold and wet day in Vienna. Vienna still had an aura of a city shrouded in intrigue. My two cousins living in Vienna since 1946 briefed us on the latest local developments. Cousin Harry, working for the Austrian press agency, was not only well informed, but also able to recommend a cross-border guide. In the best tradition of a foreign correspondent, we went to the Café Europa in the center of Vienna late at night. Recently arrived Hungarian refugees, their hangers-on and black marketers mixed with those who pretended to know the ins and outs of the border with Hungary. We met Maxi, our guide, who was recommended by Harry. The Café Europa was his second home. Guiding journalists into Hungary was a temporary sideline of his. Maxi was an experienced smuggler with a thorough knowledge of the frontier. He convinced us of his ability to take us to the major escape alleys. Leo was made an honorary member of my family. Maxi was as good as his word, delivering everything he promised except girls, which were not requested. All we needed now was transportation to reach the Austrian-Hungarian frontier. We settled on a Volkswagen Beetle, which after traveling the road to Nickelsdorf night after night, almost got there without my steering. On the first night, we set off with Maxi, who took us to an escape alley between Nickelsdorf and Andau. In normal times, the village of Nickelsdorf's one and only road is just populated by pigs, geese, and the odd peasants. When we arrived, it was a hub of activity. Ambulances flashing their blue lights, their sirens screaming, canvas-covered Red Cross lorries awaiting their human cargo, and up-team passenger and police cars with foreign license plates. Austrian soldiers, Red Cross workers, custom officers, hordes of ill-clad refugees, and the odd, bewildered local completed a frantic scene. Relating my impressions of those long-ago days, I fall back in the scripts I wrote at the time. An extract from the first broadcast recorded at ORF Studio in Vienna from Montreal radio station CFCF on 22 December 1956, entitled Freedom Border. An icy blast coming from the border rattles the shaky hut of the Austrian customs post. Through its tiny window, a lonely Hungarian frontier guard in a sheepskin coat can be seen. His collar up to protect his face, he marches up and down, stopping occasionally to stamp his feet in a forlorn attempt to keep warm. The silence which envelops the bleak scene is interrupted only by the shrill howl of wind gusts which shake the small kerosene stove in the middle of the hut around in which two Austrian border guards huddle. The highway next to the hut, which is the main artery between Vienna and Budapest, is deserted. Their rail line linking the two capitals is unused and covered with a layer of rust. Behind me is the border village of Nikolsdorf, and ahead on the Hungarian side is Hedjesh Hallam. A few feet from where I now stand, a white marking stone sticks out from the frozen soil, marking where the free world abruptly ends. Along the Hungarian side of the border are intimidating tall watchtowers. The Austrian side of the frontier is marked by crumpled red and white striped flags, hastily draped over bushes intending to assure refugees they have reached their sanctuary. As soon as the night falls, the silence of the day ends, 
the underbrush rustles, thin ice cracks. The whisper of hushed voices becomes audible. At unpredictable intervals, flares shed light on the privacy of the night. At that moment, all sounds stop, only to resume as darkness returns once more. In the distance, on the other side, behind the iron curtain, which now is more like a punctured sieve, a few flickering lights indicate human habitations. In between, people converge in search of a better life, carrying their earthly belongings in fragile bundles and stuffed rucksacks. Despite the risk of running into trigger happy Russians or tense Hungarian border guards, the old, the middle-aged, and the young crawl under cover of darkness through barbed wire to escape the nightmare they have left behind. One early morning, just having returned from an incursion into Hungarian territory, I gingerly approached two Magyar border guards, my feet firmly planted on Austrian territory, inches from Hungary. My offer of cigarettes is eagerly accepted. The two guards are healthy-looking peasant lads. They seem bored, and then intrigued to have someone from another world break the monotony on this frosty morning. When they see the sergeant approaching, they quickly suck the cigarettes into their pockets and march away, turning their backs to me. Once on a starless and moonless night, I join an Austrian border patrol. We walk along a path running parallel to the frontier, the corporal in charge holding a large torch in one hand and a gun in the other. Stopping suddenly, he holds his breath. A whimpering sound is audible. He shines his torch, which is more like a searchlight, towards a haystack on the Hungarian side. In a muted voice, he calls, Osterreich! Austria! The whimper continued. As he is prevented from intruding on foreign territory, I am asked to investigate. Approaching the haystack, I noticed human shapes huddled together, the whimpering now sounding more like weeping. Fearful of the approaching stranger, alarmed, expecting the worst, they remain motionless, as if frozen in time. It turns out to be a group of eight stragglers, including two toddlers. The oldest of them, sounding exhausted, speaks in German. Once they convince themselves I am not a Russian, they meekly follow me. Only on seeing the Austrian flag and soldiers in uniform, different from those who have fled from, do they relax. On entering Nikolsdorf and realizing they have reached safety, their bloodshot eyes fill with tears of joy, hugging and kissing everyone within reach. Communism lost eight serfs this night. The free world gained eight citizens. This night, like many others, there are still more escapees gathering on fields all along the frontier. We hurry back to make the last few steps less perilous for those lingering in the darkness. My next broadcast on CFCF is entitled Safety Harbor. Since the start of the Hungarian uprising, the dismal village inn of Nikolsdorf has become the cosmopolitan listening post of the Western world. Despite this sudden notoriety, the worn hard benches, uneven floorboards, along with the smell of beer, cheap tobacco, and sweat still pervade. Only the patrons have changed. Bewildered locals become a minority, confined to a poorly lit corner. Another part of the inn is occupied by the minions of the world's press. Also sitting around bare tables, but close to the tiled stove, are the newly arrived refugees, patiently waiting for the transportation to one of the camps assigned to them.
the men are unshaven, the women's kerchiefs covering their heads. Two young chaps gulp down some schnapps to fortify them for the trek back into Hungary to rescue their elderly mother, who in the confusion of flight has been left behind. Moving from table to table are the exploiters of misery. In whispered tone, they offer Austrian shillings, German marks, or American dollars for Hungarian forints at miserable rates of exchange or trading hard currencies for watches and rings. Others, adopting the role of modern-day Scarlet Pimpernels, grandly promise to deliver next akin for a consideration. Separated from the countrymen are a few oldsters who decide to return home because refugee life is not for them. The barn next to the inn has been converted into male sleeping quarters for exhausted new rivals. Two weak bulbs dangle from a rafter, throwing long shadows on a row of bodies wrapped in gray blankets. Most are fast asleep. A few stare blankly at the dome-like ceiling of the barn. Farther down the village street, lined by bare trees, is the Red Cross Station. In the requisition building, incoming refugees are registered and given a hot meal provided by a steaming soup kitchen. Right across the road, a one-story school has been taken over by volunteers of Save the Children's Charity, who take care of young arrivals and their mothers. Because of a large number of people during the last 24 hours, the limited space is crowded and the air putrid. Despite the presence of well-meaning organizations, all trying to cope with an endless human maelstrom, some individual tragedies cannot be avoided. The desperate granny, who whilst fleeing, is separated from her ailing husband, a tiny baby found crying in no man's land, waiting to be claimed. The roar of an approaching convoy breaks the stillness of night. Strong headlights light up the dark road. A dozen Swiss lorries just back from Budapest come to a halt in front of the Red Cross building to unload their human cargo. The tall man in a great coat emerging from the driver's cab with the lead lorry is Mr. Lundstrom the Swedish head of the International Red Cross. Surrounded by reporters, he gives a brief summary of the journey and the terrifying roadblocks on leaving Budapest, the continuous checkpoints along the way, the body searches before receiving permission to cross the border. Soon, the convoy moves on, and the town of Nikolsdorf goes back to sleep. Only the distant lights of the Austrian border station beyond the end of the village shine brightly. Night after night, Leo and I drive to Nickelsdorf, returning to Vienna at dawn. Apart from his odd bit of one-upmanship, we get on quite well. His lack of German increases his dependence on me, which may have been one of the reasons for asking me to join him in the first place. His limited need for sleep has caused me some difficulty, but he is good company and the right chap to be with in tight situations. One moonless night, not having come across refugees close to the border, we ventured deeper than usual into Hungary. After a lengthy walk, we hear voices, but instead of the usual whispered Hungarian, it is Russian spoken in loud voices. Advancing slowly and cautiously, we see about a dozen Russian soldiers grouped around a bright campfire. Engrossed by the sight, I expect them like a Red Army chorus to start singing a wistful Russian folk song. Leo, the ex-paratrooper, less musically inclined, insists on a quick retreat. He was right, because on returning to Vienna, we hear of a reporter 
caught on Hungarian soil who has been detained for two days by a none too gentle Siberian unit. The Montreal Gazette printed my report on the 2nd to 3rd of January, 1957. My heading of the first of two installments was Gateway to Canada. The solid line of three deep extends along the entire block. The early ones have arrived at four in the morning. Those lining up have two things in common. They are all Hungarians, and they are all seeking a new life in faraway Canada. Tired immigration officers go about their task of processing edgy applicants. More than 10,000 have already been dealt with, while some 7,000 have now arrived in Canada. For most, Canada is somewhere in North America, where an uncle or cousin twice removed lives. Whole families, in some instances three generations, move impatiently forward, closer and closer to the immigration officer who can end a nightmare and grant a new and hopeful future. The decision to join the line on Truchlovin Street in central Vienna is a difficult one. It means to renounce one's country of birth after witnessing its rape by a foreign power. On the third floor, Canadian Pacific Railway posters with the Rockies as background, views of Nova Scotia fishing villages, placards of Montreal and Toronto and live in the bare walls. People who have never traveled beyond the confines of their country gaze in awe at the placards. Back on the street where the rain had turned into snow, the line three deep has grown longer than before. The second article, which I headed into the New World, appeared the next day titled Soviet Ire Brave to Aid Refugees. The Western Railway Station in Vienna, the Westbahnhof, is one of the symbols of Austrian reconstruction. The old station having been destroyed by Allied bombers in 1945. On a bitterly cold morning in December 1956, a fleet of crowded buses draws up at the ramp of the terminal. Over 700 Hungarian refugees emerge, heading for a long train on the departure platform. Large handwritten stickers spelling out Canada with a K are fastened on the carriage windows. An old ex-German army soup kitchen manned by volunteers dishes out steaming bowls of soup to the shivering emigrants. The hot sustenance helps to brighten up low spirits and warm cold limbs. The haunting sound of a Hungarian melody emerges from one of the carriages, gradually swelling into a mighty chorus, which drowns out the usual railway station noises. Not knowing the melody, nor understanding the text, it sounds like a thanksgiving prayer. Not deluding myself, I am aware that not everyone on this train is a valiant freedom fighter. There may well be some agent provocateurs among them, though the genuine refugees can be relied on to weed them out. Austria, a mere 10 years after the end of the war, still scarred, redeems itself by mobilizing scarce resources to ease the plight of Fotsam and Jetsam which has suddenly descended on their country. In so doing, they knowingly have risked the wrath of the Soviet Union, whose army stands at Austria's undefended border. After the bronze and brains of the escapees have found refuge in Canada, Australia, the USA, England, France, and Germany, it seems unavoidable that the country which has opened its borders will be left with the old and the infirm who no one else wants. The station master, smartly turned out with his red cap, 
Give the signal for the departure of the long train. Carriage windows are lowered and hundreds of faces of today's refugees and tomorrow's Canadians peer out. What happened in Hungary was the first uprising against communist rule. The first crack in Soviet omnipotence before their house of cards collapsed a quarter of a century later. And I was a minor witness. Thanks to all who made this episode possible. UC Brainin for braving the adventure to Hungary with my dad, Leo Heaps, and writing these dispatches. To Carol Brainin for sharing them with me. And a big thank you to my brother, Adrian Heaps, for his narration of the dispatches and playing the role of UC. To August Rodriguez, Tom Tompkins, and Bailey Bates for their voiceovers. And to Bailey Bates and Michelle Hall for their invaluable help as editors. To Pixabay and Freesound for music and sound effects. And if you have a story you'd like to share, please drop us a line at stories at boomerbedtimestoryradio.com. This is Karen Heaps, your host, signing off. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye.